Amen. Let's pray to our Lord. Lord, will you indeed are great. Lord, there is no name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Lord, you have sent your own Son that we might have life. Lord, great are you and worthy of our praise. May that not just be a, the refrain of our, of our lives on Sunday morning, but may that be the refrain every morning we rise and every night that we lie down. May our lives be bookended by the greatness of you. Lord, may our hearts be turned to you to reflect that greatness. Lord, as you've called us through Christ to love one another, may we show that love to the outside world. May we show that love to those who are within the walls and the family of our church. Lord, we ask that as we look at your word, Lord, that we know that you have specifically through the Holy Spirit given us many different commands that teach us how we might live with one another. Lord, as we look at those passages, we ask that they would be, that we would hear them, that we would see them, that we would reflect upon them honestly in our own minds. Lord, give us conviction where we need it, give us encouragement where we need it. But Lord, most of all, may our actions, may our attitudes, may our hearts desire be to show the greatness of who you are, the greatness of your sacrifice, the greatness of Christ, and the greatness of your spirit living inside us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are in week seven of nine of our series on the church. And every time that we get toward the end of anything, I reflect back and I think, this is my favorite series that we've gone through. This is my favorite books that we've gone through. This is my favorite time that we've had together. And I feel like the, the series on the church has been no different. This has been my favorite series that we've done so far. Next week, Pat Hermesia is going to be preaching, and then the following two weeks, we'll finish up uh, messages eight and nine, and then we'll go right into the missions conference, which means it's October, and the weather tells the story, but I don't feel like summer's almost over, and our lives are moving on, but they do, and so we will. Uh, you'll notice in your outline that it is very full today. I printed out all of the one another commands. That phrase is used other times, but these are all 59 of the one another commands telling us how we ought to live, how we ought to relate to one another. And almost all of them are positive in nature, telling us how to live. There are about five or six that are negative, telling us how not to live, how we should not be living. But I just wanted you to have all of those. We're going to kind of go through a bunch of them in categories, and we're going to go kind of quickly through some of them. So I wanted you to have that reference of all of them there. Uh, and before we get started, I, you know, just on the idea of loving one another, our church, you, as a collected group of people who serve the Lord together, are very loving people. New people that come to our church typically say, the people are very kind. Someone introduced themselves to me. Someone talked to me. Someone invited me over for lunch. I felt very welcomed and loved in the church. So before we start, I just want to say thank you for living out the one another commands. 
I feel like our church is especially good at trying to be proactive with loving one another and loving new people. So that's what I want you to know is that you're doing well. I also want you to look at your own hearts and say, are there areas that I personally can improve? What can I hear the Lord speaking to me and saying, this is where I can improve? A long time ago, a man named Tertullian, who was one of the early church fathers in the second, third century, saw conflict on the horizon. Tertullian was able to look and know that while Christianity was monotheistic, meaning that the Christians believed in one God, that the Romans were either pagans or polytheistic. They were pagans in which they did not believe a normal thing that most people believed, or they were polytheistic where they would take any number of gods and just worship whatever came to them. Since the Christians were unwilling to participate in the pagan rituals, and the Christians were unwilling to accept the whole pantheon of Roman gods, they were seen as antisocial. The Christians did not take part in much of Roman worship. They did not take part in much of Roman religion. And so the Romans, the people of Rome, looked at the Christians and knew that they were different. Tertullian saw this dichotomy that the Christians were eventually going to be at odds with who the Romans were. There was no way around it. In fact, Tertullian and some of the other early church leaders were going to make sure there would be conflict. Tertullian said that in his day, Christians were starting to be persecuted and that persecution was growing. He said that whether the Tiber River rises, so whether the, the river rises and it, it floods its banks and there's floods and destruction, or whether the Nile River drops and there's drought and destruction. Whether the Tiber rises or the Nile drops, Christians were to be blamed, and the acceptable answer was feeding them to the lions. That was the culture that they lived in. So this conflict was unavoidable. Tertullian knew that Christians were so different than who the Roman people were, there was going to be conflict. Tertullian is known for saying, in a mocking way, looking at the Christians, that the Romans would say, see how they love one another. They're even willing to die for each other. It was meant in mockery. It was meant to cast a negative light on who the Christians were. The Romans believed in loyalty. The Romans believed in duty. You'll remember Julius Caesar, Vini Vidi Vici, I came, I saw, I conquered. Like this is like the holy grail of Roman behavior is to come, to see, to conquer. These people are now our people. The Greeks were a little bit different. The Greeks believed in personal excellence, and they believed in philosophy. Speaking of conquering, Plato also said, for a man to conquer himself is the first and noblest of all victories. 
The Romans wanted to conquer everyone. Plato wanted to conquer himself. And then here are the Christians. Again, not trying to conquer the world and not trying to conquer the self. And Christians know that in Revelation, the Bible says the Lamb will conquer. The Lamb of God will come and he will conquer. The Christians stood opposed in every way to the Greeks and to the Romans and to those living around them. And today our society isn't much different. We as Christians stand opposed to the things of the world, the beliefs of the world, the pantheon of gods that may be worshiped, the ability to choose what is right for you as opposed to what is right by God. There is much division in our world today. You can divide easier than you can have unity. You sit with somebody you don't know and you're, you're quicker and more likely to find something that you disagree about than something that you agree about. But inside the church, it's to be different. Inside the church, we are not to have those same types of attitudes that show the division, that picture this difference between us and them. Inside the church, there should be a profession of faith a profession of faith that's followed by a walking out in the ways of Jesus, living a life that follows Jesus, speaking the words of Jesus, and loving one another like Jesus. As we look at these one another commands, especially the ones that are to love one another, I want you to see that under the umbrella of loving one another comes all of the other one another's. To love one another is the trunk of the tree, and the tree grows and puts off branches that are building one another up. To love one another is the sun at the middle of the solar system and encourage and equip one another, all surround loving one another. To love one another is the orchestra conductor who calls up all of the other one another's. To love one another is the principle guiding one another under which all of the other one another commands fall. And that's because we are, first of all, to love like Jesus. The Bible calls us to love like Jesus. At the end of John chapter 12, Jesus is telling his people, We've been here, we've done all these things, but it's almost time for us to go. It's almost time for me to go. And Jesus says, gives them his mission. He says, I have come to save the world. A couple verses later, Jesus gives his example and he says, I have come to serve. And he washes their feet. And then Jesus comes and he says, you also are to love one another. The sacrifice of coming to save the world, the service of no servant is greater than his master, to literally get down and wash their feet to give them that picture. And then explicitly saying, you are to love one another the way that I have loved you. It's John 13, 34. I give you a new command, love one another another. 
Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. I read that verse and I, I love John 13, 34 and 35. Some of my favorite verses. And I've said this before. I hope you can identify with it because if not, then I'll just be here by myself. But sometimes I read a verse or a passage and I look at it and I'm like, has it always said that? Because I don't think I've ever noticed that. I don't think I ever paid attention that John 13, 34 says, I give you a new command. Like I know that verse, but it never really sunk in that this is a new command. So I thought, what is the new command and why is it new? Because in Leviticus 19:18 it says, love your neighbor as yourself. That's not new. This is, you know, to love others shouldn't be new for them because they've been told to love others. That's the Jewish law. Love your neighbor. So what's new about this? And what's new is the example that Jesus loves, how Jesus loves. For the Jews to love your neighbor as yourself was to do the minimum. Like, I'm going to love my neighbor. But first of all, what do I have to do? What is required of me? And who is my actual neighbor? Do I have to love somebody that's two doors down? Do I have to love somebody across the street? Is it literally only the people I come in contact with? What is required of me to obey this teaching? And then Jesus comes and says, hey, this is a whole new command to love one another in the same way that I'm loving you. I'm sacrificing myself to save the world. I'm serving you as an example. And now I want you to do the same thing, to be sacrificial, to be willing to give yourself up and to serve others. To love like Jesus is to love one another like Jesus did. To love your neighbor is often transactional. I give and you give, and therefore we have loved one another. But Jesus comes and he says, this isn't transactional. You are to love one another, period. If they don't love you, if they don't reciprocate, if this is one-sided, this is no longer conditional. This is no longer the old command. This is a new command that's unconditional, that holds no conditions over who you will love or how you will love because Jesus says, I loved you in this way. I gave it all up, everything. And you are to love one another as I have loved you. It's not because of you, it's for you. So Jesus says, love one another as I have loved you. That type of love is an action. It goes and does something. That's what 1 John 4.10 says, love consists in this. Not that we loved God, but that God loved us and he sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And listen to this part. Dear friends, if God loved us in this way, so if God loved us that he was willing to sacrifice, we also must love one another. To love one another is an action. It's something that we must do. We can't be passive while loving one another in this way that Jesus sacrificed, so we too, not only in word, but also in deed. And now this also isn't a hypocritical kind of love because Jesus came and sacrificed and he said, this is the way that you are to love one another in action. 
But that action we know from Jesus is also a heart's reflection of the action. It's not purely the outward action, it's the heart that loves one another enough to actually do something. To love one another in action and in the heart. We're also to love one another in unity. Colossians says, above all, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. I would love if it were easy to love everyone. It's like, this is just a command. I see it. I check the box. I love everyone. Everyone loves everyone. We sing Kumbaya and we're all happy. It's easy and there's never any kind of conflict like the, like the early church. There's no needs and it's just everything's great. But that's not real life. To love is actually difficult. You know that, right? If you're married, it's sometimes hard to love one another because there's disagreements. And so you have to go out of your way to continue to love. It's not automatic. It's like a like a transmission of a car, right? You've got an automatic and you've got a manual. In an automatic transmission, you get in, you turn the key, you put it in drive, and you just go. You don't think about the gears, you don't think about the shifting. The transmission is automatically shifting between gears. But when you start driving a manual transmission, you think about, am I in first gear, am I in second gear? Especially when you first start. Like when you first learn to drive a manual transmission, you think about every gear or else you're stalled in the middle of the road because I thought I was in first, but I'm in third. And it's difficult. It's not automatic. But the longer you drive a manual transmission, the easier it gets. Right? Like I know Caesar has like 18 gears in his truck. You know, you drive a big truck, you don't think about it. You're just like, dun, 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 dun. I don't even know how far, I assume it just still goes up and down, but I don't even know. But it's, it becomes easier. It becomes more automatic for you. Loving one another is the same way. It doesn't just happen by default, but it is something that can become more automatic. It can become more natural. The longer you drive that transmission, the more likely you are to be able to hear the RPMs and you know what gear you're in because it's a familiar sound. It's a familiar feeling. Loving one another is that same way that we love and it becomes more automatic. So Paul says, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Love is the glue that holds people together. Love is the perfect bond of unity. If you love one another, you are likely to be united with them. Love overlooks an insult. Love finds commonalities. Love cares more about someone else than it does about themselves. So love is the perfect bond of unity. You know, my wife's home with a sick baby right now. She doesn't have to think about, should I just leave the baby at home? I could just leave her in the crib for a few hours and just come back. She doesn't think about loving the baby. They're united. The love is natural. The love comes out of a loving heart. And so that perfect bond of unity is love for one another. The woman who founded the Red Cross is named Clara Barton. And Clara Barton was known for trying to live out these one another commands. A friend of hers came to her one time and said, hey, Clara, do you remember the time that 
this particularly, particularly bad person said these specifically bad things about you? And Clara looked at her confused. And her friend said, you have to remember. And Clara said, I distinctly remember forgetting about it. <laughs> she chose love as the bond of unity. I've been insulted, and I choose to forget that insult. I choose to say love and unity is more important than my insult. So in loving one another, we love like Jesus, we love in action, we love in unity, and we also love in position. The position that we love in comes from Philippians 2. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look not to his own interests, but rather to the interests of others. How do my actions affect someone else? How do I put someone first? That I should look to someone else's interests rather than my own. Can you imagine what the world would be like, what a church would be like, if every single person said, I don't care about myself, I only care about other people. Whatever I need to do, I'll do it as long as I am serving the interests of someone else. But we're selfish people. It's hard to put someone else's interests above your own. It's not easy, it's not automatic, but we need to put others before ourselves. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. When we don't get anything out of it, it is even more difficult. If there's a relationship that you give and never receive, that's what it means to love. That's what it means to love not your own interests, but the interests of others, where you give and never receive. The final one for loving one another is to love in honesty. To love in honesty. Romans 15, 14 says, My brothers and sisters, I am convinced about you that you are also full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. To instruct one another means that you first of all have to know what good instruction is. You know God's word and you're able to instruct someone else in it. But you're also teachable. This goes two ways. To be teachable, to be humble enough to accept correction and to be wise enough to give correction. And of course that correction should be done in love. Able to instruct one another is an instruction in love. And sometimes the most loving thing is saying the hard thing. Now, if you've ever had to say a truthful but hard thing to someone, that's not a conversation you look forward to. It's one that you think about and you wake up thinking about and you're thinking about the words. How am I going to say it? What am I going to say? But you know I have to say that hard thing because it's truthful and it's loving. I think of Apollos in Acts chapter 18. Apollos was a fervent and zealot man. He was excited for what the Lord was doing in his life and he was going around and he was preaching and he was teaching. And the Bible says that he knew a lot of correct things about Jesus. And he knew about John's baptism, but there was some gaps that he didn't have yet. So 
Priscilla and Aquila, two other people, pulled him aside and said, hey, Apollos, let's fill in some of those gaps. You don't know that Jesus was baptized and you don't know some of these things that came after that. Apollos was teachable. And Priscilla and Aquila kind of put their necks out there and said, let me, in honesty, love you enough to say, I'm going to help you with some of these difficult things. And Apollos continued to be a great man for the Lord, having those gaps in himself filled in. So to love one another is to love like Jesus, to love in action, to love in unity, to love in position, to love in honesty. And under that umbrella of loving one another comes to build one another up. For that, I want to look at Romans chapter 15. We're going to look at the first few verses. Paul says in Romans 15, starting in verse 1, that we're to build up the weak, to build up the body. He says, now we who are strong have an obligation to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not to please ourselves. Each one of us is to please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For even Christ did not please himself, but on the contrary, as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. For whatever was written in the past was written for our instruction so that we may have hope through endurance and through the encouragement from the scriptures. Now may the God who gives endurance and encouragement grant you to live in harmony with one another according to Christ Jesus, so that you may glorify God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, with one mind and one voice. Romans 1, 15, 1 and 2 says that the strong have an obligation to bear the weakness of those without strength. Those who are strong are to bear the burdens, are to carry the burdens, to build up the body. If you think of someone who is physically weak, they need help physically carrying something. Paul's talking about the spiritually weak, the spiritually young in their faith that they need correct instruction. They need to be carried and built up. They need discipleship. They need love. They need someone to invite them and bring them close to show them this is what Christianity looks like, to build up the weak. Those of you who are strong have an obligation to build up and to bear the weakness of those without strength. And each one is to please his neighbor for his good, to build him up to see that other person and say, I will step out. I will bear the needs and the weaknesses of that person. And then Paul gives us an example in verse three, for even Christ did not please himself. On the contrary, it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. Christ's sacrifice was not self-pleasing. He could have walked away and that would have been the pleasing thing for himself. But Christ did not walk away. He did not please himself. But he chose the insults of our insults that he chose to bear himself. That's the picture of what Paul is saying is the insults of those who insult you have now fallen on Christ. That that's the example that we are to sacrifice to build up one another. And the verses 4 and 5 talk about the encouragement from the scriptures. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5.11, Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up as you were already doing. We had Tom Baird's service yesterday, his memorial service, and there's that passage in 1 Thessalonians 
4, 13 through 18 says, you know, we do not grieve like those who have no hope. And then it talks about the resurrection. It talks about the future, the, the joys and the hopes that we have in the future. And it ends by saying, encourage one another with these words. And in 4.13 and I think 5.11, it's this picture, and Paul also says that in Ephesians, that encourage one another with these words. To take and to use the words of Scripture, that's what verse 4 says, that we may have endurance and through the encouragement from the Scriptures. I've been thinking about that a lot the last couple weeks. What does that mean that we would have encouragement through the Scriptures? My natural instinct is to say the first thing that comes to my mind and not always stop and say, but what does encouragement from the scriptures look like? If someone's going through a hard time or they're having a bad day or they're having marital problems or their kids are walking away from the Lord, what does encouragement from the scriptures look like? Are my words any better than encouragement from the scriptures? Certainly not. So how can I take those problems and say, here's what the psalmist says. Here's some proverbs that might be encouraging. Do you remember the story of such and such? Do you remember how the encouragement comes through the scriptures to build one another up, to encourage them every day? And those in the strong side of the maturity in their faith have an obligation, an obligation to encourage, an obligation to bear one another not to bury, an obligation to encourage, not to just endure. We have that obligation if we are strong in the faith to look at a believer who is weaker in the faith and struggling and say, hey, I know you're struggling, but this is on you. It's hard for your marriage to survive if you're going out on the weekends. And I love you enough to tell you that. It's hard for your wife to love you when you say those things to her. It's hard for your kids to respect you if you go home and watch things that you're telling them not to watch. And we have to be able to say, I care enough about you to bear your weaknesses. It doesn't please me at all to say negative things. It doesn't please you at all to have to have those hard conversations. But that's our obligation. And often we want to know why. Why should I have to say those hard things? Verse 6 gives us the answer. So that you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ with one mind and one voice. Building each other up, bearing one another's weaknesses, the strong looking out for the weak, the big looking out for the small, glorifies God. And look at the very last two words. With one mind and one voice. It collects us together, it brings us together, and we have a common bond of Christ. We have a common mission to love one another, and this is our obligation, to bear and to build up one another and to be born up, to be built up. That's part of loving one another. Another part of loving one another is to serve one another. The first way that we can serve one another is with patience. Ephesians 4, 2 says, with patience, bearing one another in love. Everybody's patient the first time. It's the 10th time that we lack patience. 
Paul knows that. He writes letters and he's like, don't make me say this again. Listen, I'm coming and if I have to repeat myself, I'll be very upset. You know, we're all regular people. We know what it means to have to be patient. It's the idea that we are to walk worthy of the calling that we have received. That Christ certainly is patient with me. Forgiving and expecting that I too will forgive. When Abrienne was young, and I, I asked her if I could tell this story, she said yes. When she was young, like, I'm talking like two or three years old, someone told her a story about a steamroller. Told her a story about a steamroller. Forever she was scared of steamrollers. <laughs> so she would lay in bed and, what if a steamroller comes? I'm like, you're two years old, relax, go to sleep, you know? But she was like, what if a steamroller comes? And every night we would talk about what if a steamroller comes? Like, they're very slow. <laughs> you just move out of the way. What if it comes and it, okay, so what if it comes through the fence, over the hills, over the rocks, over the, the wall, into your bed and steamrolls you? That's the concern, right? I'm just like, so we're clear. Yes, that's my concern. Okay, I'm going to be patient. Like, <laughs> you know, it, it takes patience because it, it just doesn't make any sense that somebody would attack this one section of our house with a steamroller for no apparent reason. But that's what it means to be patient. Because when you're patient with somebody, it builds trust. When you're patient and you hear and you respond with encouragement from the scriptures and you respond by loving one another and you tell someone else, hey, I understand you're feeling afraid. But the Bible says if you're afraid, cast all your anxieties on him who cares for you. If you're worried and you're feeling like, what if I die? Hey, don't worry. Because if you die, you're going to be with the Lord because the Bible has promised that when we are no longer with him, that we have a hope of a greater future. And you're bringing patient encouragement. To be patient with someone is a way that we are loving them. Being patient builds trust and being patient builds the bonds of unity. Another way is to accept the burden. Galatians 6 says to carry one another's burdens, and this way you'll fulfill the law of Christ. Being busy with God's work, being busy bearing one another's burdens is a way of serving one another. I remember a few months ago, I was heavily burdened, and I was I reached out to a couple of our missionaries, to, to Gil and to Vince and to Mark, and I just, I just felt like I, like I took my burdens for, for better or worse, and I don't know if this is advisable, but I just told them, like, here's all of my problems, and half of them are my problems, and half of them are someone else's problems, but they're all my burdens, and I just gave them all of my burdens. And all three of them heard and listened and prayed for me and followed up and said, hey, you know, we talked about this. How are you doing? Here's some encouragement. Have you thought about this? And it was great just to have somebody to carry my burdens, to be able to say, I'm struggling with this. I'm having a hard time. Will you pray for me? What should I do? How should I handle this? To bear and carry one another's burdens and also to sacrifice. To serve one another is to sacrifice. When we serve and give or do for someone else, it's always going to be a sacrifice for us. That's just part of it. Galatians says, 
For you were called to be free, brothers and sisters. Only don't use this freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but serve one another through love. Sometimes freedom is choosing not to do what I can do. Choosing not to do what I've been given as freedom in Christ. Choosing not to do that for the benefit of someone else, for the love of someone else. Not to serve the flesh, my own flesh, but instead to serve one another through love. Our freedoms come in second to serving someone else. If my freedom in Christ gives me the opportunity to do something, but I see someone else, I choose them over me. I choose their needs and I choose their spirituality, their walk with Christ over my freedoms. Oftentimes that comes with someone who's different. It's easy to love someone who's like us. I like people who are like me, right? It's easy because you're like me. And I like me or else I'd change. So I like you because you're like me. But when someone's different and someone doesn't have the same priorities that I do or they don't want to do the same things, there's a clash. And so I choose to love, to serve, to care about. I don't let my freedoms in Christ trump that other person. Preferences and dislikes all have to be overcome. Those are freedoms in Christ that we don't have to do everything we don't want to do, but for the benefit of others, for the love of others, we choose to serve them. Serving God is not always the same as serving others. When we serve God, we're not always serving someone else. And when we're serving someone else, we're not always serving God. So as we think about being obedient to God, being obedient is service. But I can serve someone else out of frustration. I can serve someone else out of guilt and out of anger. And I'm not serving the Lord in those ways. I'm serving myself. I'm serving what Paul calls the flesh. Galatians, Paul's talking a lot about the law, how the law affects those Jewish believers who are still intent on observing the law. And he's telling them, don't use the new freedom that you have in Christ for yourself but instead choose someone else. D.L. Moody said, we may easily be too big for God to use, but never too small. I can choose to be big in my own mind. I'm too big for this task. I'm too important for this task. But we're never too small for God to use. Okay, so loving one another is to build one another up, to serve one another, and also to live at peace with one another. The first way that we can do that is to prioritize peace, to be purposeful with seeking peace, not accidentally. Romans and Mark both say to live in harmony with one another, to be at peace with one another. And that's something that we have to strive for. Like I said, it's easy to find reasons to divide. It's easy to find differences, but to find ways that we are living in common, to find the things that we have in common through Christ is an important part of being a Christian. To say, I choose unity, I choose harmony, I choose peace with one another instead of division. That's what God did through Christ. We have peace with God because of Christ. 
Another way is to humble ourselves. First Peter says, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Peaceful living is to be a humble person. You get the idea when, when Peter says to put on clothes, like to clothe yourselves with humility. It's visible, it's outward, it's purposeful. Nobody gets dressed accidentally. You don't just wake up and find yourself dressed. You put clothes on. You chose to put those clothes on. Every morning I'm like, I'm ready for the uniforms of the future. I don't want to pick clothes out anymore. I just want to be dressed like Star Trek. The gray <laughs> uniforms, some people have like a brown stripe or a red stripe. Okay, you're important, you've got the red stripe. I just want to wear the same thing. I don't like to pick out clothes. And what, what Peter's saying is that we have to purposefully put on clothes that are humble, that other people should see our humility, that we know we are choosing to put on humility. So peaceful living is to prioritize peace, to make that purposeful, to humble ourselves, and to accept one another. Paul says in Romans 15, 7, therefore welcome one another just as Christ also welcomed you to the glory of God. To welcome is to accept or to receive, and it means to value the other person more than yourself, to value the other person more than being right. I've noticed that in a lot of our elders, that they value the relationship more than they value just being right. I'll watch them hold their tongue because they don't feel the need to correct every last thing, to be right about every last thing. There's a time and a place and they have the right wisdom to know when that is and when that's not. They're good at accepting one another. I read about a uh, church that had a unique ministry in this idea of welcoming and accepting and receiving one another. The church was purposeful about finding people whose ministry, and I quote, was to sit. They would have people whose whole ministry on Sunday mornings was to find someone new or identify someone who looked lost or to see someone who looked lonely and just go and say, hey, I'm Brandon. Do you mind if I sit here? That was the whole thing. That was all they did. Sometimes a conversation would, would strike up. Sometimes they would ask questions. But that was their purpose, was to just say, we want to be welcoming. We want you to feel at home that this is where you're welcome. And so they would find people who would just go and sit with somebody. Very unique way of implementing this in a practical way. So loving one another is building one another up, serving one another, living at peace with one another. And I want to give you two obstacles. Yeah, there's like five or six, like I said, but I want to give you two of them. And they're both things that you never want to hear and you never want to say, but sometimes you have to hear them and you have to say them. Okay, the first is one that all too often I have to use at home, and it's no biting, okay? No biting. And it's usually like this, no biting. Why are you biting? What does that do for you? You want that person, in, like you want to bite them? Don't bite someone. Paul says in Galatians, if you bite and devour one another, 
watch out or you'll be consumed by one another. Right? Like it's a joke, right? Paul's telling them in jest, don't bite and eat each other. It's a bad way to be. But think about the social media, the text messaging, the short form content, the faceless communication. Man, if we don't have face-to-face communication, like Mark's, this is like Mark's favorite day of the year. He hates text messaging. He doesn't want to do anything that's not face-to-face. And he's got a good point. Because there are things that we would say by text, we would say on social media, that you would not look someone in the face and say. And that's hard. That's hard when we feel like I'm safe to bite someone because they're not standing in front of me. I'm safe to devour that person because they're not right here in front of me. And someone told me when I first started, if you get an anonymous letter, put it in the trash. Don't even read it, don't even look at it. If it's anonymous and they won't even sign their name to it, straight in the trash. Doesn't matter what it says, it could be, you know, you won the lottery, who cares? If it's not signed, if it's not, someone not willing to sign their name to it, straight to the trash. We have to be able to look at one another and give those hard things, not just put them out on Facebook and be like, well, this person knows who they are. I'm not going to name them because he's like 6'4 and our pastor, but you know who you are when I say, that's great. I'm so glad you've chosen anonymity here. We have to choose not to bite. No biting. One writer called this Christian cannibalism, which was kind of gross and also kind of true. Unfortunately true that we often will choose to bite. And Paul's admonition here is if you keep doing that, you're going to consume one another. You've destroyed not only yourself, but you've destroyed everyone around you. So no biting. And the second one is no dividing. No dividing. Okay, Paul says in Galatians, let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. He says again, stop passing judgment on one another. Both of those to be conceited means to think more highly of yourself than someone else. To provoke someone is to poke and poke and poke until they get angry. To envy is to have a jealousy of I wish I had, I wish I were more like. Those, can, those also add to division. And then stop passing judgment. Just to look at and put yourself in your own mind higher than someone else. There was a time when Charles Spurgeon was at his peak in London, one of the greatest preachers ever to walk the earth. And he was brash and he was loud and he was opinionated and one of his good friends was named Joseph Parker and Joseph Parker was the opposite but they both had very large churches in London and there was a time that they were best friends they did things together they encouraged one another and one day Joseph Parker had told Charles Spurgeon you shouldn't be smoking so many cigars. And Charles Spurgeon said, I'll stop smoking cigars when you stop going to the theater. And this divided their friendship because they both looked at the sin in each other and they chose selfishness. They chose division. They eventually made up and they became friends again until later 
Joseph Parker was having a private conversation with someone and he was saying, Charles Spurgeon, who had orphanages and loved the orphanages, that was, you know, they say almost every extra dollar he had went to serve the orphans. Parker was saying, the kids who come into Spurgeon's orphanages have no food and no clothes. When they get there, when they arrive, they have no food and no clothes. What was told to Spurgeon was the orphan kids have no food and have no clothes. And Spurgeon took that as an insult. I've brought these kids in and I've clothed them and I've fed them. And now here's my friend saying the orphans don't have food and clothes. A giant misunderstanding. Whether intentional by that person or not, a simple misunderstanding. So the next Sunday, the newspapers were there. They had already gotten wind of Spurgeon and Parker's tiff. And Sunday morning, Spurgeon just let Parker have it. The whole tirade recorded in the newspapers for everyone to see. So they go to Parker and they say, hey, did you read our paper? Did you read what I wrote? Did you see what Spurgeon said about you? Parker said, I did. I said, what do you have to comment? What's your comment on what Spurgeon said? And Parker said, I'll comment on Sunday morning. So Parker's church was packed that Sunday. All the newspapers were there. Everybody was there like waiting to write it down. And Parker got up and he said, I've heard that Spurgeon is ill today, so he won't be in his pulpit. So, but this is the day that Spurgeon normally collects an offering for the orphanages. So Parker said, it's my intention for us to collect the offering instead of Spurgeon's church. So they passed the offering plates in Parker's church and they were so full, they had to dump them three times to continue collecting the offerings for Spurgeon's orphanages. A couple days later, when Spurgeon recovers, he goes to Parker and he says, you didn't give me what I deserved, but you gave me what I needed. For us to love one another is to put our personal interests behind us. To say for the greater good, I choose to be loving. I choose to care more about you than I do myself. Parker had every right to say whatever he wanted. Spurgeon already put him on blast in a way he didn't deserve, and he could have defended himself, but he chose to love Spurgeon instead. Jesus calls us to love one another. It's clear you have 59 different verses about how we ought to treat one another. 20 of them or so are different ways to say love one another, including explicitly love one another, love one another, love one another, love one another. And to tie a nice little bow on all of this, John 13, 34 says, I give you a new command to love one another just as I have loved you, so you also are to love one another. But John 13, 35 finishes that statement. 
Jesus says, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. The picture of what it means to follow Christ is the picture of loving one another. We choose to love one another because God first loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. We choose to love one another because Christ could have called down legions of angels. He could have saved himself from the pain and the suffering of your sin and of my sin. We choose to love one another simply because as followers of Jesus, we live and love like Jesus. Ephesians 5 says, the fruit of the Spirit is love. If we have the Spirit of God living inside of us, what grows out of us should be love. If you claim to be an apple tree, but don't produce apples, you're not an apple tree. He who does not love does not know God. If we are unloving, if we bite and devour and hate and divide and we do not love, then we do not know God. If we love one another, if we show that love for one another, all the world will know that we are his disciples. They will see the love that we have for Jesus. They will see the love that we have for one another. And they're watching. They're always watching. They're watching on Facebook. They're watching at work. They're watching in our family relationships. They're watching divorce records. They want to know, do Christians really love one another? And when we love one another well, it tells them there's something different about those people. They stand apart from culture. They stand apart from society. They stand apart from everything that we value because they value something differently. For us to love one another is a reflection of our love for Jesus. A watching world wants to know, do you love Jesus? And if you do, the evidence is you will love one another as he commanded us to love one another. Let's pray. Lord, may we be people who love you, who serve you, who recognize our commitment to you is greater than just the words, but their actions. They're a heart that seeks to put others first for your kingdom's sake, for the name of Christ. Lord, may we give good reputation to the name of Christ. May the idea of going to a Christian church be good for people because they know that we love each other, because they know that we love you, because they know that we have been saved by Christ. Thank you, Lord, that you have sent Christ, that he chose the cross, that he willingly gave himself up for us, that he might die, that we might live. Lord, we pray that you would continue to make us a church that loves well, that loves you, that loves Christ, that loves good works for all of those in the body and outside of the body. Lord, I'm so grateful of our church being a loving church. Pray that you would continue to draw us closer to you, that we would continue to be one, that we would have unity of heart and unity of mind, that we'd have one voice 
in which we proclaim the life, the death, the burial, the resurrection, and the salvation that Christ offers. In whose name we pray, amen.